Hey there, everybody. It's Ellen Weatherford. And Christian Weatherford. And we're here with Just the Zoo of Us, your favorite animal review podcast, where we rate your favorite animals out of 10 in the categories of effectiveness, ingenuity, and aesthetics. We are not zoological experts, but we try our best to get the most accurate and interesting information we can. Sorry about a little bit of a delay this week. We recorded a little late. Things were a little busy at the Weatherford house. We're all right. Don't worry. On that grind. Yeah, yeah, but it's okay. We're here. And actually, there was a piece of information for my segment that was not available to me until today. So recording late actually resolved a sort of plot hole (laughs) in mine. Well, very good. We have some silver lining. Yeah, there was a little bit of that. Uh, Would you like to explain what you did with your beard a moment ago? I tucked it into my hoodie. (laughs) (laughs) I asked Christian to please make sure that his large, magnificent lion's mane of a beard was not um, (laughs) bumping up against the microphone while recording, as I sometimes have to edit the sound out of. (laughs) I said, Christian, please make sure your beard isn't bumping into the microphone, and he tucked it in like one would perhaps tuck a a napkin in at dinner. (laughs) I'm sure it's very glamorous. It's great. I get to look at this the whole time. (laughs) This is going to be awesome. I'm sure that won't distract me in the slightest. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christian, I believe it is your turn to go first this week. So what I've got this week is the Arizona Bark Scorpion. This is great. I don't think we've ever talked about a scorpion on this show before. Not directly. We've talked about them in relation to other animals, particularly you did mm. previously. Mm-hmm. Um what was it? The grasshopper mouse. Yes. Yeah. Famously unbothered by yes. the scorpion. <laughs> <laughs> um unlike most people, I would say. The scientific name for this one is Centuroids sculpturatus. This species was submitted by Valentine Strider. Thank, Thank you. you. That's also a very cool name. Yes. Apparently, there's many scorpions that go by bark scorpion, Mm. so I chose Arizona bark scorpion. We also are only one degree of separation away from a bark scorpion in Arizona that has affected someone we know personally. Yes, a good friend was stung by, I don't know about specifically this kind of scorpion, but a scorpion in Arizona. Mm. Um, She's fine. Yeah. Everything's okay. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Makes a cool story, I think. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm getting my information from the National Park Service website. Excellent. uh, Particularly for the one related to the Grand Canyon and the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum website. Oh, very good. I really want to go there someday. It seems cool. And a couple other papers that I'll cite along the way. Now, these scorpions, not very big. Their adult size reaches a max length of around two and a half inches. Little? Little, yeah. Or, scorpions don't get that big in general, right? When I think of scorpions, like I think of like, I don't know, maybe the size of your hand, perhaps. That would be an enormous <laughs> You know what scorpion. it is? What? It's Fallout that's giving me yeah. <laughs> a bad <laughs> idea of how big they are. The whole point of the... <laughs> The whole point of the stuff in Fallout is that it is like irradiated and mutated and not like what it would be in real life. Cow sized scorpion. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, oh, well, maybe they're hand sized normally. No, they're little. You know what I've always heard about scorpions? I don't know if this is something you'll talk about, but Mm. I've always heard that the smaller they are, the more deadly they are. 
like the more venomous they are, the smaller they are. I didn't come across this, but this does sound like small scorpion propaganda. <laughs> was, this, was this a ploy by Big Scorpion? <laughs> um, Physically large scorpion. Yeah. Not just, okay, you got it. Yeah. So for those maybe unfamiliar scorpions, because I, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a wild scorpion personally. I, don't, I haven't either. We've never lived in the right place just yet. Yeah. Them. So scorpions are arthropods. More specifically, they are arachnids, just like spiders, mites, and ticks. This is interesting to me. Yeah. They seem so unspider-like, I think. <laughs> they seem almost more crab-like to me. Yeah. Yeah. Not too far off, I suppose, being in the arthropod family. It's like a shrimp, if a shrimp bent the opposite way. Spicy. <laughs> so they have four sets of legs and one set of pincers. Okay. So for a total of five sets of limbs there. That's crab. This is crab. <laughs> right? And of course, they have the uh, segmented tail that has a stinger and a venom gland at the very end of it. A noted departure from the crab sort of format. Yeah. <laughs> Slightly related to spiders and their venom, just an entirely different delivery mechanism. That's really interesting to me. Yeah. But they, it's coming out the other end, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but spiders are still venomous arachnids, just from the complete opposite direction of the mm -hmm. body. Very mm -hmm. interesting that it works like that. Yeah. It's like a frunk. <laughs> what now for the for the younger listeners what's a frunk so that people don't think we're swearing on the front show trunk a front trunk <laughs> as an elephant might have <laughs> a car that uh whose engine compartment either does not have an engine or whose engine compartment is in the rear oh that seems ill-advised i mean i think teslas have this like, that's where the gas is right maybe. in the back you don't want those to be in the same place right I mean... Your gas eh, tank and your engine? I'm eh. pretty sure they're not supposed to be right next to each other. <laughs> anyway. This is not a car podcast. No, it's not. Where these can be found are southwest U.S. and northwestern Mexico. Uh, they're found in desert climates, but they actually prefer cool and moist places. Mm. Yeah. Maybe living in the desert out of sort of a necessity. <laughs> but they have dreams. Yeah. They have dreams of retiring to the beach. And of course, that range includes Arizona. They belong to the taxonomic family Buthidae. When their relatives here, there's over a thousand species in that same genus. Really? In yeah. the same genus? Yes. So these are like first cousins uh -huh. evolutionarily. There's a lot. Which, wow. you know, makes kind of, kind of aligns with how spiders and insects and things go usually taxonomically. Yeah. Minor variations on a theme. Yeah. So to jump right into our first category of effectiveness, which is talking about physical attributes and things that help them do what they need to do, I'm giving the Arizona bark scorpion an 8 out of 10. That's pretty good. Yeah. So, of course, the first thing I want to talk about is they are venomous. They are actually the most venomous scorpion in North America. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they pack a real punch, huh? Mm-hmm. So they use that stinging tail to deliver venom in cases of fending off predators, but also catching prey. What kind of prey is it that they're after? Insects, spiders, other scorpions. Seems like that much venom might be overkill <laughs> for these little guys. And it is the kind of thing that, you know, with each use it gets depleted. Mm. Um, and then they have to, you know, metabolically generate more. It's not like an infinite ammo no. <laughs> supply thing. <laughs> so I guess you could fake them out, get them to use up all their venom, 
and then they're kind of defenseless at that point. I mean, you, you gotta, they're going to have to sting to do it. They'll sting you more than once if you let them. This is not a bee situation. <laughs> That's true. The bees should take notes, I think. Uh-huh. Maybe bees can learn something. Uh, now, along with humans, it can prove fatal, particularly in those that will experience a severe allergic reaction resulting in anaphylaxis. But it's not all that common. Um, especially in the United States, in places that have, you know, readily available medical treatment. There are other parts of North America where it's a bigger problem, where they don't have that kind of medical access, to where it can, you know, get to the point more often to where it results in human fatality. But best case scenario is it's just localized pain, similar to a bee sting, actually, but it can quickly get bad depending on other factors. <laughs> That's kind of what our friend experienced with being stung by, um, she didn't get an ID. Well, she had the actual scorpion right. that stung her, right? Yes. Yeah. She showed us a picture of it. It was really cool. <laughs> I'm not confident enough in my arthropod identification skills Mm-mm, to yeah. say confidently what exact species it was, but mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. she had the guy. <laughs> it caught him red-handed. <laughs> and I, th- I think she had consulted uh a medical provider or perhaps poison control yeah it was poison control yeah, yeah she'd called poison control and they gave her advice and- yeah it was basically uh you know if, if these symptoms started popping up then you need to go to the emergency room or something mm-hmm. um, but in most cases it seems like something that can just be handled at home take some ibuprofen yeah i would definitely call out of work for that <laughs> <laughs> definitely like oh i just can't work today because of the scorpion sting yeah i am gonna need to take some pto for this sorry (laughs) that would be me yeah i get it um and a lot of times these stings happen because you don't know they're there and you maybe grab something that they're on or roll onto them in your sleep or one thing i have heard a lot about people that do live in like the southwest is that you always have to knock out your shoes before you put them on Mm. because if there's a scorpion in there and you put your foot in there without looking they're gonna sting you and it's not gonna feel good right so always uh knock your shoes out if you (laughs) live in a scorpion rich environment (laughs) good advice the next thing i wanted to talk about are there pincers yeah, what's going on? Because it seems redundant with the much pointier bit elsewhere on their body. I think the pincers are more for move food to mouth type function. Okay, so these are more utility. Kind of like you'll see this with crabs a lot, too, mm-hmm. like where they'll p- pinch off bits of food to move towards its mouth. Right. It's more like that. Okay, I, I, I guess I see pincher, I automatically think that's a weapon. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure it, it is used to like grapple. Something that might be a little bit larger that it wants to sting. Oh, that makes sense. It'll be an easier target to sting at that point. It's like an anchoring sort of thing, like hold on so that you can sting without thrusting yourself backwards, I guess. Mm -hmm. When I talked about the grasshopper mouse, uh, which eats bark scorpions, they would like repeatedly sting the grasshopper mouse. But the grasshopper mouse had this very like special nervous system where the venom of the bark scorpion specifically like acted as a painkiller in its Mm. body like it metabolized the venom to where it actually just like neutralized all pain signals in their whole body (laughs) i see yeah very cool it is primarily a neurotoxin so that makes sense that's so cool yeah the next thing which i find to be the most interesting thing about them is their biofluorescence tell me about this so fluorescence is when higher energy light like ultraviolet light is absorbed by something and re-emitted as a lower energy light, 
like visible light. And biofluorescence just means that object or medium is something that is living. So it's taking light that is so high frequency that like we wouldn't be able to see it, right? right? Like ultraviolet being like, it is so far above our visual spectrum that it doesn't look like anything to us. But then it soaks it up, sends it back out, Mm -hmm. not as the exact same light, but as something a little bit more in our wheelhouse. Yes. And these are just examples. It's not always ultraviolet to visible either. Oh, really? This could refer to any... Like from one higher to any lower. Okay, so it just could like take one color and emit it as a different color? It could. Um, Not in this particular case, but just in terms of what fluorescence means. Mm. It could mean something different. Because the visible range of light that humans can see kind of sits a little bit in the middle of the electromagnetic spectrum. So, you know, above visible light is ultraviolet and then below it is um, infrared which I always associate with the um, communicators on Game Boys. Sure. That's how you used to, you used to have to, before, back in my day, before we had Bluetooth, <laughs> you could uh, connect devices to each other with infrared connection. Right. Now, this is different than bioluminescence. Yeah, this is something different. It is a chemical reaction within the living thing that produces light. So this is not an addition of outside light and then something happening to it. This is like a chemical reaction happening inside the thing and emitting new light. Yeah, that's like the actual ignition. Right. Like lighting a match, right? Like sure. they're actually like the they are the source of the light. Mm-hmm. They're not just taking in something else's light and sort of translating it into a different frequency. Right. Most scorpions actually do this. Interesting. Uh, to where if you shine a UV light on them or a black light, for example, in an otherwise dark room or outside space, they will then glow. I think I won't be doing that. <laughs> maybe maybe my favorite scorpion is the one I don't know about. <laughs> right. This makes for a very convenient way of trying to find scorpions. That's what I'm thinking. <laughs> maybe I just let them... Although, I guess if they're in my room or something, I want to know where they're at. So I know... Sure. I can escort them outside yeah, and not step on them. Yeah. But maybe don't do that in your yard if you don't want to know that they're there. <laughs> right. It's like when people shine their flashlights out in the grass and see all the spider eyes looking back at them. Mm-hmm. And they're like, I wish I hadn't done that. <laughs> and a lot of this basic info about biofluorescence I'm getting from the paper, Salamanders and Other Amphibians Are Aglow with Biofluorescence by Lamb and Davis, published in Cyrep in 2020. And did they happen to go into why, like what this might do for the animal? Like, this seems like an unusual trait. What's it for? It is. Uh, we don't actually know yet. There's lots of hypotheses about it. But the chemical reason why uh, is because there are compounds in their exoskeleton that glow a blue-green color under black light. Interesting. Yeah. I guess I'm just wondering, like, what? how does that help them? We don't really know yet. There's thoughts about why. Um, Now, before I get into that, though, something interesting is that this is, it is the exoskeleton that's doing this, or sometimes called the the cuticle of the scorpion. Oh, the cuticle is like a layer of like almost skin-like. It's not exactly skin, but it's like a layer over, it's like the very outermost layer Mm. of the exoskeleton. It's like a waxy almost. Yeah, 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 yeah. So what's interesting about that, though, is that, let me back it up, all arthropods molt. Yes. All their exoskeletons. So as they grow larger, their exoskeletons do not grow larger with them. So they have to molt them and then generate a new exoskeleton over their now larger body. Um, So what's interesting about it is that it's their exoskeleton that's doing this fluorescence. So after they've freshly molted, 
they no longer biofluoresce. Really? Does it like <laughs> not, take a while? Not until it grows back. Dude. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. They've got stealth mode on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> now, what that also means, though, is that that empty exoskeleton will continue to biofluoresce. <laughs> oh, no. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. Will it just like biofluoresce forever? I couldn't find like, an answer to that. I was wondering about it, but. I guess it would. Okay, so we've talked about biofluorescence before mm-hmm. in animals. And you talked about this in a surprising creature, the wombat. Yes. Which is absolutely bonkers. Very silly that they do this. But I remember you telling me that like they found out that a different animal biofluoresces and they were just like, well, I wonder what else does. <laughs> yeah. They like decided to just like open their specimen drawer of like mm-hmm. all of like the taxidermied creatures that they had and just like shine black lights on them to see what glows. <laughs> I wonder I guess that would imply that like that is like a structural phenomenon that doesn't require the animal to like be alive for it to happen. Right, because it's the substance in this case in the exoskeleton itself that when it absorbs ultraviolet light, it then re-emits uh, a blue-green visible light. Mm. Now, what's interesting about that is, you know, this is always happening. It's just in those situations where we're using a black light, which is, you know, our man-made way to produce ultraviolet light, but doing it in a way where there's no other visible light, or at least the visible light present isn't super intense, mm-hmm. that lets us be able to see and notice that fluorescence because that's still happening during the daytime, right? Oh, true. Because the only source of natural ultraviolet comes from stars and our sun. But But, we just can't see it. Right, because the sunlight also includes a ton of visible light, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) That is way more intense, at least to to us. Right, yeah. Our eyes just can't even like pick that up. We don't have receptors for that light in our eyes. So it is still fluorescing. Like I'm, I'm hoping I'm using the right word there as a verb. Right. Yeah. 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 That's definitely a verb. <laughs> um, so that still happens in like the daylight. It's just we we can't see it. Which I guess would imply to me that the scorpions can see it. Because why else would they be like that? Right. So there are some thoughts about it. So it's thought that it might help in identifying other individuals of the species, or maybe even direct protection from UV radiation, because. Some forms of UV radiation are what cause sunburns in humans, for example. So it could be protecting them from from that UV radiation by absorbing it before it can hit, you know, their soft bits. Uh, that would make a lot of sense for living in a desert environment right, where you're in yeah. direct sunlight like mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. Or another thing it could be is to enhance their awareness of UV exposure. One paper suggests it could be related to their perception of light in general. I'll read a short quote from their summary in their abstract. These results suggest an active role for fluorescence in scorpion light detection. Other studies indicate that photosensitive elements in scorpion tails are sensitive to green light. We therefore propose that the cuticle may function as a whole body photon collector, transducing UV light to cyan green before relaying this information to the central nervous system. Scorpions may use this information to detect shelter as blocking any part of the cuticle could diminish the signal. It's like their whole body can tell if there's a shadow Mm -hmm. passing over it. Right. Wow. (laughs) That's really interesting. It's like their whole body is working as like a giant eye. Basically. Now, that's just a hypothesis at this point. And they they go on to say in that paper that there's way more testing that would need to be done. And here's Mm -hmm. how to do it to take this even further. But there's other animals that can kind of work like that. Mm -hmm. Like 
octopuses have photon receptors in their arms so mm. that they can tell what light is around them so that they can change their color to match it. Mm-hmm. Right? Cuttlefish like have light receptors all over their body mm-hmm. so that they can blend in with the shadows and stuff. Like it wouldn't be out of the question because we've seen animals that can do this. Right. So it would be interesting if that's the case. And that would be a really interesting way of doing that. Like right. detecting changes in like UV at least just like light outside of our visible spectrum, like just Mm. detecting that. That would be an interesting way of like measuring the amount of sunlight your body is exposed to. Right. Because something I hadn't touched on yet is these animals are nocturnal. So if they are caught outside in the daylight, you know, they will seek shelter. Now, the other hypothesis, way less interesting, is that... (laughs) Drag them, okay. (laughs) is Is just that... It's like an anatomical byproduct of something else. I was almost thinking that when you first described it. Like, I wonder if this is anything that helps them at all or if it's just like unrelated. Like that chemical composition helped them in some other random way. The chemicals themselves that are causing the fluorescence Mm -hmm. um, have, uh, I think it was antifungal properties. That's pretty good. So it could be the case that it's just... That trait got selected for because it helps them avoid infections. And it's just those compounds also happen to (laughs) fluoresce. Yeah, it's like an unrelated thing. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. I I, I can't think of any way that there would possibly be to like test that. They're trying. Yeah. They're trying. But what I thought was interesting, because that they have photoreceptors in their tails. I hadn't come across that at all. I've never heard that before in my life. That is so cool. (laughs) Very interesting. But it makes a lot of sense for what they're trying to do. Right. Also a great way to liven up any rave. <laughs> just throw scorpions. Release the scorpions. <laughs> They're a great party favor. You just pass them out. Now, the photoreceptors in the tail kind of makes more sense about how they hold the scorpion tail. They're often depicted with like their tail curled up, kind of sitting over their bodies. I couldn't even tell you if they could uncoil them. That's I how just... like often I see this yeah, image. <laughs> yeah, it's either flat or fully coiled, nothing in between. Yeah. Um, but that positioning would let the photoreceptors absorb more light coming off of the body that's true yeah they'd basically just be like holding it up like holding your cell phone up to get better signal (laughs) and that paper was scorpion fluorescence in reaction to light by gaffin et al published in animal behavior in 2011 i did not think that this was going to be the thing we were going to spend so much time talking about in this segment (laughs) did not think that was going to be it (laughs) yeah um well you know it touches on the physics which i i have a interest in oh no that's your baby (laughs) i know light physics and vision is is your your yeah yeah that's pretty cool that reminds me the eye positioning is a little funky on scorpions is it really they're high up and very close together <laughs> like a little cartoon character <laughs> it makes them look kind of goofy a little bit yeah if you're scared of scorpions look at a really close-up picture of their doofy little face <laughs> my last thing about effectiveness they are better at climbing than most scorpions i wouldn't have guessed any of them were at all yeah But this leads to things like them hanging out under leaves or maybe under a door handle, Mm. that kind of thing, in a place that you might not see them before you touch it. I also don't love them having the high ground. I don't love that. I want them to be down down on the ground, please. You see, if they took the rattlesnake approach... (laughs) And just were very loud and flashy, then we wouldn't have any beef with them whatsoever. Mm -hmm, Everything mm -hmm. would be fine. But really, they're taking the, you know, try to not be seen approach, but their backup is a dagger (laughs) with poison. But if we could just see you better, we wouldn't step on you. Yeah. yeah. Let's compromise here. (laughs) 
moving on to ingenuity i didn't have a whole lot here i'm going to give it a six out of ten ingenuity we describe things uh, like things that are smart they could be methodologies hunting tactics that kind of thing the things here i want to note are they're nocturnal makes sense for desert climates Um, Mm -hmm. do your business when it's you know not an oven (laughs) when you won't literally melt into the ground yeah um this probably also helps them with the predators that do eat them grasshopper mice yes <laughs> road runners famously will take down just about anything that moves uh birds of prey like owls you know what's funny road runners will like pick them up by the tail and like slam them down on the ground mm-hmm. they're so rude <laughs> they're way more violent than depicted in looney tunes um they, they do hibernate in the winter really yeah often in large groups Oh, the <laughs> little scorpion cuddle puddle. <laughs> it's not any kind of cuddle I want involved with. No, but, but they got all those legs. That's <laughs> They got so many legs for hugging. After lifting that rock, I would, you know, have a shocked gasp and then a slight, oh, before putting the rock back down. <laughs> I would maybe only like in retrospect, like I would immediately pee my pants and then maybe <laughs> later be like, I guess that was kind of cute. They were all cuddling. Um, and then finally, the babies... Will no. will ride on mom's back before oh. their first molting. Okay. And they do like they do look like just very miniature versions of adults. <laughs> <laughs> Don't talk to me or my son ever. <laughs> me or my hundreds of sons ever again. <laughs> and then aesthetics. I'm giving it a seven out of ten. Uh, they definitely look like they mean business. Yeah, it's that immediate like. I don't know if it's because they feature so often in like logos for things Mm -hmm. and like they're usually used as a sort of like symbol of like danger and like edginess, right? Astrology. (laughs) (laughs) Is is it your sign? It is. (gasps) This is your boy. (laughs) This is you. Um, but I feel like even if, if you had never heard or seen of a scorpion before, if you were just slightly familiar with dangerous insects and spiders and things, you could probably see this and know not to mess with it. Yeah. And I don't know if that's like that deeply embedded human instinct not to touch dangerous things. Right. Or if it's just that they're like armed to the teeth and have like pointy bits at every single mm-hmm. possible angle on their body. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Definitely have a cool looking but do not touch vibe to them. There are cooler scorpions, though. There are more dangerous scorpions, too. (laughs) There's one called the Death Stalker. Oh, wow. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah. I mentioned that one in a a video that I did, a TikTok that I made, that was uh, about trying to guess if things were the name of a real animal or a D&D monster. Oh. A Death Stalker. That's a real one. Yeah. It seems like the closer you get to the equator, the more dangerous the scorpions, especially in (laughs) um, Africa and Asia. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, they'll get you. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm glad I don't live in Scorpion Town. <laughs> we could visit. Conservation status, no special status. They appear to be thriving and doing just fine. Good for them. <laughs> so happy for them. They unfortunately do find their way into people's houses pretty often because they're looking for, you know, cool and moist places, which in a desert, a modern home will be that. I just feel like we're not supposed to live in Arizona as a species. <laughs> it's not for us. <laughs> we talked uh, last time we talked. We talked about how there are like certain deep sea creatures that were just never meant mm-hmm, for human mm-hmm. eyes to be laid upon them. Like we were never supposed to know about them. We were never supposed to see the Mariana Trench. That's how I feel about like the Sonora Desert, <laughs> like the Mojave. Like that's just none of our business, right? Yeah. And that is the Arizona Bark Scorpion. That's lovely. Thank you, Christian. Of course. What fun. Let's take a quick break to hear from our friends on the Maximum Fun Network, and then we'll get to my animal. All right. 
Have you ever wanted to know the sad lore behind Chuck E. Cheese's love of birthday parties? Or, my Saturday mornings are reserved for cartoons? Or, have you wanted to know how beloved virtual pet site Neopets fell into the hands of Scientologists? Or, how a former Mattel employee managed to grow Sega into a video game powerhouse? Join us, hosts Austin and Brenda, and learn all of these things and more at Secret Histories of Nerd Mysteries, now on Maximum Fun. I'm Yucky Jessica. I'm Chuck Crudsworth. And this is Terrible. A podcast where we talk about things we hate that are awful. Today we're discussing Wonderful, a podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. Hosts Rachel and Griffin McElroy, a real-life married couple. Yuck. Discuss a wide range of topics. Music, video games, poetry, snacks. But I hate all that stuff. I know you do, Yucky Jessica. It comes out every Wednesday, the worst day of the week, wherever you download your podcasts. For our next topic, we're talking Fiona the baby hippo from the Cincinnati Zoo. I hate this little hippo. Alright, Ellen, so what do you got for us? This week, I'm talking about the great crested grebe, also known as, and if you had asked me like a couple weeks ago, I wouldn't have said more popularly, but right now, more popularly known as the putekiteki. Mm. The scientific name is Podiceps cristatus. This was actually not submitted by anybody. Uh, nobody asked about this, but <laughs> it's been all over my For You page on TikTok, and I felt like I just had to talk about it. The iron's hot. I, it's about the SEO. <laughs> Everyone's Googling them right now. I gotta, I gotta ride that wave. Uh, I'm getting my information from Animal Diversity Web, New Zealand Birds Online, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, and other little sources that I'll cite as they come up. So for those unfamiliar with the Great Crested Grebe as I was just a few short weeks ago, this is a water bird usually seen floating on lakes or rivers. They have long necks, a sharp dagger-like beak mm. and characteristically striking plumage. And this is going to be a little bit difficult to just like describe with words. So I encourage everybody to look up a picture of them. They're mostly like white and brown, like brown on top, white on the bottom, kind of normal like grebe look. Um, but then they have a black crest on the very top of their head that looks kind of like angry eyebrows, but like expanded all the way back up, like, like an anime character sort of. Mm -hmm. And then they have this like like mane of feathers that are bright red and tipped with black. So mm. it's like an ombre from like like a like a scarlet red into black. It's mm. really cool and it gets much more dramatic in breeding season. So oh, in breeding season, it's been described as a mullet. <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> I wouldn't describe it that way cuz that feels like there's like an injustice. Yeah, like <laughs> It's very dramatic, though. They have a beautiful crest. And also, both males and females have that same dramatic breeding plumage. Oh, good. Which is interesting, because you usually see those, like, really dramatic feathers in males mm -hmm. when talking about birds. But nope, it's both. Hmm. Which is pretty neat. And they are found throughout Europe, Africa, and Asia. But the name Putekiteki refers specifically to the subspecies found in New Zealand and Australia. So that one is called oh. the Australasian Crested Grebe. Okay. And there's like a subspecies name for it that I didn't write, write down. I'm sorry. But that's what that name refers to, like that specific subspecies. 
from what I could tell, there's nothing like physiologically separating them from the rest of the species. It seems to just be a location thing. Mm -hmm. They're like geographically isolated from other members of the species, but they're still basically the same bird. They belong to the taxonomic family Podocipetidae. Oh. The grebes, of which there are 22 species. I saw a grebe a couple weeks ago. I saw the first time in my life I ever saw one. It was on the Puget Sound. I was going for a little walk with Finley uh, down the Puget Sound, and I saw a bunch of grebes floating on the water. Oh, that's nice. They were western grebes, I think, which are common in our area. Um, but I'd never seen one before. Yeah. And I thought it was so cool. And I took the world's worst picture of one. <laughs> it's from like... <laughs> 200 feet away with my cell phone. <laughs> I feel like I've seen this bird in wingspan. Oh, probably. Yeah, almost certainly. Yeah. But now here's something that I really didn't expect. Despite their very strong similarity to other diving birds, like loons or anhingas, like mm -hmm. they're very anatomically and like behaviorally similar to loons or, or an anhinga or cormorant or something like that. And yet both DNA and fossil evidence has revealed that their closest relatives are inexplicably flamingos. Really? Ab wild card. Like, <laughs> to the point that, like, for decades, this was hotly debated. Huh. Where they were like, there's no way. <laughs> like, this cannot be. And it was really seriously, like, still completely up for debate where, like, scientists could not agree on it until within the last, like, few years they found fossil evidence of, like, an ancient... A flamingo, like a, an early species of flamingo that had the same nest structure as a grebe that was kind of like the missing link between flamingos and grebes. Huh. They're like, I guess, man. <laughs> I'm not happy about it, though. Yeah, it's like, it doesn't feel right. Like, <laughs> it doesn't, it's like the vibes are off, but like, you can't, it's just all signs point to flamingos and grebes being cousins. That's really weird. So I found that interesting and I wanted to tell you all about it. Well, thank you. For effectiveness... I am giving the Great Crested Grebe an 8 out of 10. Very good. They are expert swimmers and divers. So their webbed feet are placed like at the very back of their body rather than being like dead center underneath their body. Like oh. you'd see on like a duck maybe. Okay. Theirs are like all the way at the back. So when they dive or swim underwater, it's almost like a rudder at the back of a boat, <laughs> right? It like propels them forward and they sure. can get in like up to some pretty impressive speeds even underwater. Um, and their bodies are just also really streamlined and like hydrodynamic. They've got that long, sharp beak that like mm -hmm. cuts through the water. So they're really good at swimming underwater. The beak is almost like a spear, right? Like mm -hmm. it just, it, that, that shape is really good for moving through the water. So they're really good at that. I did take a little bit off because much like loons, this was something that we talked about with guest uh, Ivan Philipson, who talked about loons with us. Much like loons, they can't walk on land because their feet are too far back on their body and they uh, plop forward. Oh, poor things. It's no good. <laughs> <laughs> Realistically, they don't find themselves on land often enough for this to be an issue. But, you know, if one maybe like gets an injury while it's flying or something like that and it accidentally like gets grounded or something, then there's not a lot they can do about it. Where do they nest? I'm glad you asked because this leads me directly into ingenuity. Oh, for perfect. The Great Crested Grebe, I'm giving them a 9 out of 10. Ooh. And I will get into nesting, but I want to kind of like do a sort of chronological look at everything around their mating and reproduction is amazing. Like, okay. It's fascinating. So this all starts with their courtship display, which mm. is something that they are very well known for because it rules. It's so good. They pair up facing each other. 
And then they sort of like rhythmically turn their heads left and right facing each other. Like they're like playing hard to get. They're like, oh, is someone there? Oh, I don't, I don't see you. I'm looking around <laughs> everywhere. And like, they're kind of doing this sort of like back and forth movement where they're, you know, shaking their heads towards each other. They'll flick their heads around where they're like twirling and it's like tossing their feathers around. So mm. that like long crest, they're like tossing it around it reminds me of like that scene from shrek 2 where prince charming is like tossing his head and like the hair is blowing and everything like that right. like, like a shampoo commercial sort of thing they're like tossing the crest around and then they sometimes will raise their entire body up out of the water mm-hmm. and then press their chests together in a <laughs> dance that i saw referred to as the ghostly penguin what? Or the penguin dance. What? Huh. Because they get like all the way up out of the water and kind of like okay. scoot around like chest to chest. Interesting. It's very cute. It really rules. And then I saw a video, which I'm going to have to link in the episode description because it's it's going to be difficult for me to explain what it looks like. Mm-hmm. But I was watching these two, this video of these two grebes that were courting each other. They were doing the look back and forth. They were flicking the hair and all that stuff. They quickly turned around and swam away from each other Hmm. left went and grabbed some like weeds like some aquatic grass and vegetation picked it up in their beak turned around and fully booked it back towards each other Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. full speed ahead as fast as they could swam back to each other slammed full force right into each other oh no like fully slamming their chests together and then just like did a romantic little like spin like they hit each other and like use the momentum to like spin around each other yeah and then they dance with the the like vegetation that they had like brought to each other as like a gift that's called the weed dance that's nice it's so nice it's so pretty it's it's very dramatic so like they're well known for that there's lots of videos of this it's really cool Mm -hmm. so Once they have successfully courted and they have decided they're going to build this nest together, they use aquatic vegetation around them to build nests that actually float on top of the water. Okay, now we're getting there. Yeah, so it's interesting. They'll, like, take seagrasses and weeds and stuff like that and, like, weave it into grass that's already growing in the water so that it's kind of sitting on top of that vegetation, but still essentially floating in the water. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's not just, like, unsupported underneath, but it's also not connected to the land. Mm -hmm. I think this is a cool idea because it keeps their eggs safe from predators that would, like, come from the land. Like, I don't know, any, like, foxes or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Keeps their eggs safe. Now, they have laid their eggs in their nest. Both parents incubate the eggs and raise the chicks very good yes excellent high marks for this now here's a very interesting parallel with your animal that i didn't think was going to happen parents carry the hatchlings on their backs like a little boat i think i may have seen some pictures of this do their little legs stick out you're thinking of the jacana oh that's the one where there's like a billion little legs sticking out yes you're thinking of the jacana which is a different type of bird that they like the, it's the dads specifically of those it's not the moms at all oh. it's the dads that, that carry the babies under their wings remember this is a water bird so they're right, never right. going to be up walking you're not going to see the true. bottom of them that's but true this is more like a loon it's weird that they're not related to loons because this is like loons do this where the baby <laughs> chick rides on their back it's the cutest thing i've ever seen it is adorable yeah but it's also a good idea because the chicks are like small and they could very well get picked off by like a large predatory fish in the water. Right. So if there's a predator in the water, 
if they have the chick on their back, the predator in the water wouldn't see their silhouette and wouldn't be able to come up and get mm-hmm. it. So I think that's a cool idea, like a cool way of protecting the chicks. Yeah. And now here's a weird thing. You might not like this. So I'm sorry for the psychic damage I'm about to inflict on you. Mm. Hatchlings have this little bald patch right on top of their head. Oh my. Like on the crown of their head, it's a bald patch. And when the chick is hungry or distressed or in some way needs attention, it turns bright red. Oh. Like the exposed skin on top of their head just like turns this scarlet like blood red okay it's like it's like a check engine light basically (laughs) (laughs) help or like a a self-checkout register that you messed up somehow (laughs) (laughs) i don't know what that's like i've never done that i do it right every time i've never had that experience (laughs) so that's pretty creepy and weird it reminds me a little bit of like when a newborn human has that like spot on top of the head that hasn't closed up yet and it pulses with their like heartbeat a little bit i hate it i hate it i hate it (laughs) i wish they didn't do that you just put a hat on your baby for the first year or so until that thing closes up it's like a little novelty hat it's the worst (laughs) parents also teach the hatchlings how to dive by repeatedly like when they do go under to dive they'll make sure they do it like in front of the chicks and then the chicks will like repeat after them it's so cute (laughs) they're having little like grebe school it's so cute (laughs) my turn i also wanted to mention something that i saw described on animal diversity web they said one great crested grebe rejected a fish that was later found to have epidermal infection Video recordings showed that the grebe held the fish in the front of its beak before rejecting it, as opposed to the middle of its beak, which is where grebes hold healthy fish. The front part of the beak used for rejection was later found to contain taste buds, which suggests that taste was the mechanism for rejection. Hmm. So the implication is that the grebe was able to taste the fish, tell that it was not good, and then decide not to eat that fish, hmm. which is interesting. Yeah. I, this is probably not super unusual. I would have to guess that there's other birds that can do this. Just interesting that it was observed in this bird. Yeah. It reminds me of like that episode of SpongeBob where Squidward is going to take a bite of a Krabby Patty and he like, his oh, like yeah, teeth yeah. come out of his head and he takes like the tiniest little nibble with like the absolute front edge of his teeth. Right. That's what it reminds me of. <laughs> A very unusual behavior that they have that I definitely saw referenced a lot is eating their own feathers. This isn't unique to this species. Other types of grebe do this as well. Hmm. But they do eat their own feathers. And the reason they do this is because they eat a lot of pointy stuff. They eat a lot of like insects and tiny fish that have little pointy skeletons and stuff like that. So the feathers that they eat form soft pellets around things like exoskeletons and fish bones and things like that. I see. And it kind of like cushions it again so that it doesn't like tear their insides to shreds. And then they regurgitate it up like like an owl pellet or something like that. Oh, I see. Yeah. So when they regurgitate these feather pellets, they're usually full of like the indigestible parts of their food. Yeah. It seems kind of gross, but it seems like a good way to like protect your body from things that you may be eating that would otherwise hurt it's pretty par for the course of the birds 
Right, like owls do something like this too. Yeah. But I don't think owls have to eat their own feathers for this. Not that I know of. Eating your own feathers is kind of a grebe thing. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> weird. Uh, but finally, this brings us to aesthetics for the Great Crested Grebe. I'm giving them a nine out of ten. Um, they're just they're pretty, you know. Like it's it's great. I love the look. I love the bob. It's amazing. It looks really good. Also, the chicks look complete. They look like different birds. It mm. looks unrelated to the parent. They're black and white with like zebra stripes. Oh, yeah. They look nothing like the adult bird, which I think is pretty good. But they're so they're so cute. They're so cute. Mm-hmm. They're adorable. They're exactly what you want. Want a baby bird to look like so finally conservation status the species overall is of least concern but the australasian subspecies is considered nationally threatened in new zealand so they have a population of only around a thousand birds and their biggest threats are invasive species like the stoats that we just talked yeah. about last episode we did together we talked about stoats and how big of an impact they have on new zealand birds so this definitely comes into play here. They also have competition with invasive fish because they're diving birds that eat mostly, you know, like smaller fish. Mm-hmm. So when there's these larger predatory fish that are invasive, they can compete with the grebes. Habitat disturbance by boats and hydroelectric power also impacts their nesting success because Mm -hmm. they nest on the water. So within New Zealand, they are of conservation concern, which brings us to why I'm talking about them right now, why they're in the news, why they're making headlines. Mm -hmm. Every year, the New Zealand conservation organization Forest and Bird hosts a vote for the bird of the year. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of this contest or had you heard of of this contest before? Not until the... Most recent weeks. Okay. (laughs) I had heard of it before because they've been in the news before. Uh, The aim of the contest is to just highlight native birds of New Zealand and promote their conservation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. There's no stakes here. (laughs) This is just just a publicity move, basically, which is fine. It's fun. In the past, they have um, made news once the Kakapo was disqualified from the vote for winning too much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they won too many times <laughs> and they were they the idea was that they're hogging the spotlight and not All letting right. other not letting other species get that little bump in mm-hmm, notoriety. Mm-hmm. And then in 2021, I I actually remember this being in the news. I knew people that were like campaigning about this. Uh in 2021, the winner was the I'm going to do my best here. Pika Pika Turoa, the New Zealand long-tailed bat. Not a bird. Not notably, not a bird. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Much to 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 many people's chagrin. A lot of people didn't love that move, but I mean, the idea was that they're like it's a little guy, it's a little flying guy that is of conservation concern. Then we could. It was an odd move, but you know, I didn't have any qualms with it personally. <laughs> none of my business. <laughs> oh, to be a fly on that wall. <laughs> Someone was pitching that to a table of people. I get well. I mean, they got added to the like website where you could go and vote, yeah, and the people yeah. voted for them. So you know, give the people what they want. I guess. Now this year, to celebrate the 100 year anniversary of the organization, the vote was to determine not just the bird of the year, but the bird of the century. Whoa! Yeah, this was a big one. So the Kakapo was reinstated as a contestant okay. in this one. They were okay. allowed to compete this time. So, in a controversial move, last week Tonight host John Oliver announced on his talk show his campaign 
to take over the competition, like was very straightforward about this. He was initiating a hostile takeover of the bird of the century vote. (laughs) Since the only criteria to cast a vote was a valid email address. Oh, that's it. (laughs) You just had to have an email address (laughs) to vote in this competition. So his aim was to seize victory specifically for the Putekiteki. Ah, the Associated Press writes, Oliver had a billboard erected for, quote, the Lord of the Wings in New Zealand's capital, Wellington. Come I, on. I saw a picture of it. It was really good. <laughs> it's very dramatic and, like, cinematic. And it has, it has kind of unflattering pictures of the grebe on it, honestly. Like, they weren't the best pictures, I, I didn't think. There's, like, one of the pictures is, like, one of them from straight on. That's never the right angle for a bird. They don't look good like that. Don't do that. (laughs) He also put up billboards in Paris, Tokyo, London, and Mumbai, India. He had a plane with a banner fly over Ipanema Beach in Brazil. (laughs) And he wore an oversized bird costume on Jimmy Fallon's The Tonight Show. Yeah, that's... Yeah. You've probably seen this. I did see that. Yeah, yeah. he did wear a Putekiteki costume Mm -hmm, on mm -hmm. the TV. And... Yeah, he was just really enamored with this bird. And also roasting all of the other birds in the process. Like, (laughs) really dragging them. Yeah. A lot of people were mad that he did this. (laughs) Because it was, like, people who have, like, been campaigning for their bird. And this is, like, the big vote for this organization. And people have been working so hard to, like, get the word out about their cool birds. And here comes John Oliver with his whatever how many millions of people that watch his show. Oof. Yeah. There were so many votes, in fact, that their systems crashed and they had to delay announcing the winner. Mm. It was supposed to be announced last weekend, but they had to put it off because the whole system crashed because they got oh, too many votes. So they actually announced as of record, we're recording this on Wednesday, they announced this morning that the Puteki Teki was the, was the winner. Wow. Yeah. How, by how much was it? I, they didn't say how much, but we can assume <laughs> a significant Landslide. margin. Yeah. So my personal thoughts are that I think it is wonderful that he is using his platform and sense of humor to direct attention at a conservation effort right yeah like most people probably hadn't heard of this a lot of people especially american audiences had probably literally never thought about like new zealand wildlife ever in their lives probably Hmm. right like it's not a thing that crosses a lot of like people's minds that aren't already in the sort of like conservation and wildlife I was going to say, not our listeners. They probably think about no. the New Zealand wildlife all well, the time. Well, we force them to. <laughs> we, we encourage it regularly. We have a days since last New Zealand animal. And it's only got double digits on it. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I'm glad that he's using his platform for this. I do hope that some of that audience is like not just doing it for the meme, right? Like I hope that some, at least some of those people didn't just like go to the website, cast the vote for the funny man's favorite bird, Mm -hmm, and then, mm -hmm. like, never think about it again, right? Like, I hope that some people actually, like, clicked around on the website, maybe, looked at some of the other birds, right? Like, I hope there was some retention there. Maybe you get opted into a newsletter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's always, I definitely (laughs) meticulously read every newsletter I've ever signed up for. (laughs) I just really, I hope that people took the time to, like, explore what what the contest means, what the whole point of it was. But I do also 
wish that he'd picked a different bird. Like, it's a cool bird. I like them. I just feel like there were a lot more birds on the list that would have been more emblematic and more representative, I think, of New Zealand. Because like they mentioned, this bird is found in a lot of places. This is right. not an endemic species. Not particularly like unique to New Zealand and not even well known for being in New Zealand. Like most of the information I could find like out there about this bird was from them in like England or Northern Africa or something like that. Like it's just not well known for being in New Zealand. They're not associated with New Zealand. They're not like they it didn't seem like there was like a heavy sort of like association there. Mm-hmm. And there were some real bangers on the list, you know? Like well, the kiwi. They had they had kiwis, they had kakapo, they had takahe, which mm-hmm. is this really cute little like um swamp hen looking dude yeah. but like there are really really cool endemic species that you will not find anywhere else other than new zealand mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. i kind of wish that he'd gone for one of those you know but yeah i'll take it right like a win <laughs> is a win i guess <laughs> sure so yeah i thought that was just a, a fun little it was a fun little moment it's always exciting to like having like mainstream content about an obscure animal i think is pretty cool yeah it's sure. exciting for me and i got an excuse to learn about this cool bird it is a cool bird and i, and I had fun learning about them it's win-win yeah i wish he didn't like trash other birds to do it but i guess <laughs> you do what you gotta do <laughs> couldn't be me tell kakapo <laughs> I wanted to know it was me. <laughs> he called the kiwi a rat with a toothpick. How dare. <laughs> he also called it something else that I can't say on this podcast. <laughs> a lot of people were, were like legitimately really mad at John Oliver for like yeah. for doing this, but uh, I don't know. It's not my business. <laughs> I'm not his mom. I don't know. So that is the puteki teki. The Great Crested Grebe. Thanks, hon. Thank you. And thank you, dear listeners, for spending this time with us today and listening to us and learning along with us. We had a lot of fun. I hope you did, too. If you'd like to hang out with us on social media, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Discord, TikTok, stuff like that. Come hang out with us. If you have a cool animal you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, please email them to me at ellen at justthezooofus.com. We'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their show alongside the other fantastic shows that you heard promos for here earlier in the episode. And also, I was on one of them last week. I was on Let's Learn Everything. I was a guest with them. I got to talk about lemmings. So, Oh, fun. Yeah, it was really, really fun. So if you want to hear me talk about lemmings and busting a billion gazillion myths about them that somehow humanity has gotten lemmings wrong at every possible turn (laughs) throughout all of history. Go check out Let's Learn Everything. Listen to my episode on there. Um, And we'd like to thank Louise Ong for our theme music. That's all for today. See you next week. Bye, y'all. Thanks. Bye. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.